0: As a developer, you love building things that are fun and that matter. Me too. Do you want to add authentication to yet another app? Do you want to stay updated with all the security issues and patch them? Why not leave it to the experts? Auth0 is the easiest and fastest way to implement real-world authentication and authorization architectures into your apps and APIs. Allow your users to log in with either regular username and password, social identity providers like Facebook and Twitter, or enterprise identity providers like Active Directory, office 365 etc or without passwords with an email login like slack or phone login like whatsapp getting started is very easy add authentication to your ruby app or rails app sinatra and others in less than 10 minutes by writing only a few lines of code no credit card required get the free plan or try the enterprise plan for 21 days at auth0.io ruby rogues that's the number zero in auth0. Auth0 is trusted by developers at Atlassian, Mozilla, Bluetooth, Optimizely, Financial Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Try it out at auth0.io slash rubyrogues. Remember, that's the number zero in Auth0. And get back time building core features. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Eric Berry. Hey! Dave Kimura. Hey, everybody. Uh, We invited David Richards back as a new panelist. David, you want to say hey, hi? Hey there. This is going to get confusing, Dave and David.
1: It, it really is. <laughs> uh, tell you what, you guys just call me whatever you want and I'll just answer.
2: All right, whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny stuff.
0: Yeah, let's get David <laughs> Brady back. That, that I won't confuse things anymore. Anyway, I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And as this episode comes out, I just want to do a quick shout out. I'm putting together a course if you're looking for a new job. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes so you can get to it. We have a special guest this week, and that's Ben Orenstein. Ben, do you want to say hello? Yes, I do. Hello. I'm happy to be here. Now, we haven't had you on the show for a while, and I know some things have changed with your situation. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that, where you're at now, what you're working on?
3: Yeah, 100%. Uh, So about five months ago, uh, I decided that uh, it was time for me to leave ThoughtBot, uh, where I had been for about six years Uh, nothing but great things to say about that experience. Uh, It's a wonderful company. I had a great time. But after six years, it just felt like I needed to do something different. And I couldn't think of a way to make that work. I couldn't think of something that was different enough that I could continue to do inside ThoughtBot. And so uh, we parted ways. And I wandered aimlessly uh, a little bit, trying to figure out what to do. And then uh, I decided the first thing that I would tackle is creating a course. So uh, six years at ThoughtBot, Uh, Did slung a lot of Ruby, worked on a lot of Rails apps um, of various maturity levels, and uh, decided, hey, why don't I take that stuff that I've developed over those years, try to distill it down into the best bits, and turn it into a course. And uh, so I did. It's called Refactoring Rails. And it actually just came out, when did I launch? About 10 days ago, two weeks ago, somewhere around there. Took a solid, man, a lot longer than I thought. Took about four months maybe to produce the course. Um, But it's uh, eight videos, about three hours of content. And I tried to really just pick like what the, the, the thing I was trying to address was what slows down app development in Rails? Because everything's fast in the beginning. The first year of writing Rails app is great, uh, but it always kind of slows down and starts to suck. And so I said, you know, what, what are the main things that go into that? And how can I help people uh, avoid that and prevent that slowdown for as long as possible? So the course is out. i to talk about that a bunch. Uh, that's been my life for a while. But I actually, today, you happen to catch me. I'm in the middle of building a
0: landing page for my next thing, and so uh, we should we should get to that at some point too. Awesome. Yeah, we should definitely get around to that. But you've got me curious now. What makes Rails development slow to a crawl? I mean, because I'm I'm working on an app, and I'm in that phase now where you know it's like it's still new enough to where I need to add something, and I just drop it in, right? And I I know mm-hmm. that I'm I'm leaving things out that I probably shouldn't just because I want to get it done. Mm-hmm. So yeah. What mm-hmm. mistakes am I making? <laughs> well, so there's, there's some degree to which the slowdown is
3: always going to happen, right? As you add more stuff, everything interacts with each other. And that's just kind of uh, an essential reality of software development. But So the course is trying to focus on how do we fight this. Uh, and there's a bunch of different places. So I, I, tried to look out for, I tried to look out for places where people tend to stumble or things that add more complexity than they were worth. Like one concrete example uh, that I can give you is active record callbacks. So I found over the years, it's real easy to uh, get yourself in a situation where you've brought in a lot of complexity in your core models through active record callbacks. So I actually have an entire video that's dedicated just to how do we evaluate different callbacks? What kinds are okay? What kinds are kind of medium? And what kinds are really dangerous? And uh, how do those contribute to slowing you down? Uh, Another another, uh, great example is slow tests. Uh, So, slow test suites actually, I think, put a big drag on software development. One of my favorite things about working on a new app is just how fast the tests are. And so, I'd spend another whole episode talking about how do we make sure the tests stay fast so that the development experience is quick. And I actually don't even just mean that the whole suite runs quickly, but also that you can run individual tests quickly. Uh, And then, also in the testing world, let's say, uh, best practices. So, people sometimes think that the code quality of their tests are not quite as important or the, the production code that's being tested. But you have to write the test code and you have to change the test code. And so it's quality. is just as important. So I have a full episode on uh, testing best practices that i picked up over the years.
2: How much of what you're... T- I actually have a couple of questions. I find you fascinating. I find you absolutely fascinating. Um, it, it's, it's, it's hard to find developers who get into the market of teaching where they're teaching to more of a mature audience as far as as far as the type of developers are teaching too, because me, I consider myself senior, but you know, I'm, I'm you know, better than the next guy, but I've been around long enough to have made enough mistakes that a lot of the videos that I see are, are targeted more towards newer developers. Um, now, do you see your work as something that could take, uh, that could benefit those mid and senior developers and continue to bolster them uh, uh, to, to the next level?
3: I, I hope so. That was very much my intention. I think that the beginner Ruby and Rails market is actually quite well served by things that are out there. But once you kind of graduate to intermediate level, it seems to me like there's a dearth of good content out there that's targeted at those folks. And so this course was, uh, doesn't deal with the basics almost at all. I tried to like, imagine I was talking to like an intermediate plus type developer. Um, so hopefully this, this hits that, that demographic nicely.
2: How much of this is, is taken directly out of the out of the uh, the uh, the playbook of your previous company?
3: Um so the the playbook you're referring to, ThoughtBot has a wonderful thing Thought, called yeah, the playbook. Thoughtbot. And it's
1: basically
3: it's sort of like how do we run this company and how do we do development? How do we work with clients? How do we do this? So that document is very holistic. It does cover some coding practices, uh, but it covers a lot more than that. This course is basically totally focused on uh, the coding practices. So some of that, there definitely is some overlap. Like I said, like, this, is the, this is the stuff distilled from my time at ThoughtBot. It's incredibly heavily influenced by how we do things at ThoughtBot. But I think a lot of those practices have not actually made it into content that you can buy. Uh, and so that was where I was like, this should be out there. This should be a thing.
1: And I think there's a great topic, uh, refactoring Rails, because I think a lot of people fall into that trap of, hey, my application is starting to running slowly you know what, let's just throw in Redis and just cache everything. So then they started a whole, whole new set of problems of <laughs> stale caches sh- showing and all this other stuff instead of tackling the actual root cause of why is this slow. So, uh, you know, I, I'm going to look into your course. I think it should be interesting because it's always good to, even if you are a senior developer or even if you are really advanced, it's always good to get something from someone else's perspective. Because it's going to allow you to see things differently and maybe open up new ideas.
3: Totally. And I, I think that's true. And So the, the format of the course I chose very intentionally, I'm live coding in all of the videos. So I'm starting with a Rails app that has some problems and then I talk about the problems and then I refactor it in the video live explaining my reasoning and then I do a pros and cons analysis of the refactoring we just made. Because and so And I chose that format because I think it's incredibly information dense. Like It could be the case that whatever the topic of the video is, you might already have a pretty good knowledge of that area. Uh, and so I might not be teaching you anything directly like, hey, you didn't know page objects were a thing. or, or some, Sorry, maybe you already knew page objects were a thing. And so my video is saying, like, here's, here's what a page object is and here's why I like them. But by watching how I actually do it, how I actually practice TDD, how I chase down failures, how I recover from errors, I think you can learn a lot even if the, the original topic of the video isn't new to
0: you. So it seems like, because you talked about two areas that kind of got my attention. One was the um, making the test fast, making them run fast, right? And then your other area that Mm -hmm. you brought up was the callbacks. And the callbacks to me are, it it kind of adds some complexity to the code, makes it a little less malleable, a little harder to maintain sometimes, and a little harder to keep track of what's going on because it's not this linear progression. It is, but it isn't, right? Um, Because you call save and then it triggers the callback. Or, you know, you run Mm -hmm. the validations and it triggers the callback. Whereas having tests run quickly, I mean, that's just friction in doing the things that, that make your code maintainable. It, you know, having faster tests doesn't actually make your, make it any easier to add features in. It just makes it you more likely to write those tests and, and keep up with your TDD or test after. I mean, whatever practice you follow because you're going to have that in place and then you can, Basically, codify all of your assumptions. So, to what degree is this is is refactoring Rails and making things go faster, removing friction for doing the right thing, and how much of it is how you actually write the code? It, would it be accurate to reframe your question and say like, how much focuses on sort of the
3: meta coding process versus specific refactoring techniques? Right. Um, it's kind of a. It's actually pretty decent split um, so I do have episodes entirely focused on something like a form object like what are they why are they useful? why do I tend to use them in my apps uh, but then I do have um, a full episode on like tell don't Ask like what is tell don't Ask? How closely do I follow it? Is this a smell versus an error? Um, and so it's it's kind of all over the place I, I'll, I'll admit that the course I wouldn't say the course has a narrative. If the course has a weakness, I guess, it's that it doesn't have a narrative. So it doesn't have like a start, middle, end type shape to it. Instead, it's more like these are like the best core ideas that uh, came to me effectively when I I looked back on my time and said, what are the things that I do and the techniques that I know about and the features in Rails that I use or avoid that I think keeps me going fast? And so it's a little bit of a grab bag. And that, that might not be for everybody, but that's how the course ended
4: up. It seems to me that um, going fast, you know, making things quickly is one thing. But you're also accomplishing something that I value probably more, which is that the whole project seems to get streamlined by keeping TDD in place, keeping things like this in place, keeping it simple and focused. That's where I usually get really sluggish on my projects.
3: Totally. And some of the content, like I have some content in the course that talked about uh, the importance of keeping your readme up to date. Or the value of having like a bin setup script in your apps directory, which is a practice that I picked up uh, that I love a lot. Where it, if if there's certain things you need to do or install or configure as part of this, or like even generating seed data, you should be able to run that with one script. Like every developer needs to do it. So why are we doing this by hand in an ad hoc way? And so it's those. So there are some of those process things like what, like what you asked about, Chuck, uh, in this course as well for sure.
0: 'Cause they, they matter. That that affects how fast you're going overall. One other thing that I wonder a little bit about is a lot of the products or projects that I work on are just for me, right? I'm the only developer. I might go ask somebody for a code review, but ultimately I'm the only person that has to look at, build stuff against, and deal with my code. And so I'm wondering, you know, at what scale does this really pay off? Does it pay off exponentially as you add people because it lowers the burden of communication and things like that? Or is it just kind of linear? As you add more people in, it just it simpli- simplifies it about the same for them too. That's a good question. I, I'm I'm
3: actually not sure. My guess would be that the payoff for solo people is probably slightly less than the people working on teams. Um, like you said, if you like if you have a team of four developers, you're adding so much code so much faster, and there's a much greater communication overhead. So code quality and code clarity becomes extra important. Versus if if it's just you, you might even remember all the code you've written and, and be able to load that context really quickly. I wouldn't, so it's probably cannot. there's probably a slightly
1: less
3: <laughs> Yeah. So maybe not so there's probably slightly less leverage. But mm-hmm. I, I would say still, like even in those solo efforts, um, you can sort of get away with <clears throat> not worrying about quality too much for a little while. But that comes back to bite everybody eventually. And so the question is where is that? what's that curve look like for you? And you have to sort of make that tough judgment call. Is it worth it to focus on quality for this particular thing?
2: Yeah.
4: I feel like that's sometimes the, the death death knell in my, some of my old projects is that I don't want to go back and relearn them again. And so they're, they're yeah. good enough.
3: Yeah. <laughs> totally. And I, I, this is a great example. I think of why I like to say this is why we make the big bucks because there's not, a super, there's not a correct answer here exactly. Like, where on the quality curve is it worth sitting for this particular task, for this particular project? We have to make a judgment call about how much effort to invest in a certain place and whether we expect that judgment to cut or that, uh, that effort to pay off later. And that's just, that's just part of what makes being a programmer hard, but it's, it's, that's kind of part of the job.
2: Was it hard to leave Thoughtbot?
3: It was really hard. Um, it's, it was. So, I'm very close friends with the people there. Uh really liked the people there. It was a really great job and there wasn't like any major thing I could point to that was wrong. It wasn't like, oh man, I can't wait to escape from this particular thing because this is so bad. And so it was definitely a challenge. And, and also at the same time, when I left, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't have a co-founder. I didn't have an idea. I was just like, I'm not quite satisfied with where I'm at. So I know I need to make a change, but I don't know what the change is. So it was like leaving a really good situation for pure unknown. And yeah, it made it hard to pull the trigger. It was emotional. It was it was definitely difficult.
2: I look at certain companies like that, and there's there's several in Utah that I look at, and it's almost like when you go work for a company where the talent is so strong, and they are. I mean, Thoughtbot is by you know is a, unquestionably one of the thought leaders in in the Rails world, right? They've they've been around since early days. They've helped structure um, Shoulda and factory grow and which is not factory bought and all like all these different things that that people use on a day in day out basis. Um, it's almost like if I went to work there, I'd be like, okay, who do I have to pay for this education that I'm going to be getting from you guys? And uh, I, I find it fascinating to talk to people who have gone through that refiner's fire and come out the other end because they're exceptional developers. That they come out as exceptional developers, and so. I, I, I'm I'm actually quite jealous of, <laughs> of your experience, but I could imagine it would be hard to hard to leave that company.
3: It was you know, it was it was surprising to me how painful it was emotionally to not be seeing the people, and it's in retrospect that feels stupid because like obviously that's one of the penalties you pay for leaving. And I am an extroverted person, and I like people a lot, and so I was surprised that it surprised me, but it did. Like it was it didn't hit me for like maybe a week or two where it was like, wow, I'm just going to see all those people, roughly never, you know, maybe once a month or every, every so often. But giving up those, you're effectively giving up those relationships. You're never going to, like, you won't go back to seeing that 40 hours a week, even if you, like, I've made some efforts to go have lunch at, at, at ThoughtBot and, like, meet up with certain people. Um, but effectively, you're kind of surrendering that relationship. And it was, it was tough. It, it still is tough, honestly. It still kind of sucks.
0: So I'm curious, you you felt like you, you know, by going out on your own, you were getting this opportunity. Um, and, and this this is part of the the people story, right? Which is so interesting about all of this. You feel like you're you're getting, you know, whatever it is that you wanted. Do you feel like you're getting closer to that or any more clarity about what that is? Yes.
3: Uh and that's a good question. I I I've gotten novelty, that's for sure. Uh like launching my own thing by myself was for sure new. Uh, I learned a bunch by having to do everything myself uh, and starting uh from more from scratch without a without a giant audience like Thoughtbot has a huge audience, so if you make anything there 's an immediate sort of initial group of people that want it. Uh, I have a little bit of that uh, but not not nearly on the same scale um, so I, so I have learned a lot from that I, I actually have kind of I, I would say my one of my big takeaways and this is a thing I suspected about myself, but this is the experience has been confirmed is I am. I'm extroverted. I'm a team person. I like building things with people. And so right now, solo entrepreneurship for me does is not a great fit and does not feel sustainable. So I think I have maybe one or two more things uh, that I could get through uh, in this sort of working by myself phase. But at some point soon-ish, I think I need to rejoin a team of some kind. Either a team I make and we work on a thing or join an existing team or something. But... S- Style not a great match.
2: I, I I resonate so well with what you're saying, so so well with what you're saying.
0: You should go work with your co-host Derek at Drip. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's,
3: we we actually have done some pairing on the weekends, which is nice. Uh, it's good to just like work on a thing with a with another human who cares about it.
0: Yeah, I guess we should shout out about your podcast. Um, do you want to just kind of sure. give the, the elevator pitch for it? Um, I know Derek yeah, totally. from interactions uh, between he and Rob and I, as well as from mm-hmm. MicroConf, and he's a terrific guy. And, you know, I've admired you for a few years. So I, I'm excited for what you guys are putting together in the show, even though I don't listen to it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, yeah, so the podcast is called The Art Product. Uh,
3: I host it with Derek Rumer, who works over at Drip. Drip is an email marketing automation company uh, that uh built up and recently was acquired by Lead Pages. and so Derek has had an interesting journey he's CTO over there and we get together each week and we talk about what's going on with us and it's kind of an interesting con- contrast because I'm working by myself on brand new things and Derek is working uh, leading up a team of I don't know how like maybe 15 developers now at this point in a company that was originally bootstrapped and uh, now has been acquired so we have very different concerns and different things we're coming to the table with but I think that actually is a strength of the show like, you get to hear somebody at the very early phase and somebody at the very late phase. And uh, we have uh, interesting discussions. It's kind of, it's, it's sort of the like, uh, what are you working on? Uh, I'm working on this. What are you working on? I'm working on this, that, that sort of format. It's fully it's really unstructured. Um, but we, I, I think one thing that we do well is that we are, we're both very transparent people. And so when we're having a bad week or like I'm struggling, like feeling isolated or feeling like kind of low energy or sad, I bring that up and I talk about it and i think we do a pretty good job of sharing the real challenges that are involved with doing these sort of things and that's important to me because i th- i think it's important that we not just broadcast the highlight reels i want people to hear the hard parts too
2: how how is that received
3: so far so good people seem to appreciate that and and even if it weren't received super well i think i would do it anyway i think it helps i think it's useful to people if you're in a rough spot Hearing that other people are having a rough time as well, I think is is really useful. Um, and I want people to to know that that's just like
4: there's ups and there's downs, and I'm feeling it too. It seems like only through authentic stuff like this, you know, the ups and the downs, oh, that's like my life. Oh, I can build like you're building, rather than, "Oh, I just see the highlights," and then, oh, yeah, well, <laughs> I guess I'm not as good as them. Right, exactly.
0: Yeah, that's you know, the kind and, of thing that I try and dig into with my Ruby story is just the same thing, right? It's, well, Ben got into code the same way I got into code, or maybe it's a little different and his story's a little different from mine, but it, it makes you human. And then, you know, and then, yeah, when we do get the highlight reel, it's, it's like, yeah, but he got there the same way I did.
1: Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people fall into that trap and they just won't admit it because they're embarrassed or whatever, but... I constantly find myself in the imposter syndrome uh, state of mind where I just feel like, you know, I run into a problem or something I can't explain or understand and it bugs me. And I'm like, is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? You know, am I just a failure? You know, what's going on? Then, you know, I take a break, get back, you know, to work after uh, some time apart. And I'm like, you know what? I figured it out. You know, and then my confidence boosts back up and, you know, I continue on to work. But I think that so many people get into that feeling, but then they don't ever bounce back. You know, they may just, like, hit a slump and stuff. And I think that's really horrible. But having other people or just knowing that there's other people that are right there in the same shoes as you, it's it's comforting from the sense that you're not alone. But I think that a lot of people benefit from hearing uh leaders in the community or whomever people who write blog posts uh to say like you know what i'm just feeling really bummed today that you know i'm having this issue at home or at work or whatever
3: Hmm. yeah totally i think the good news is that the stigma around that kind of stuff seems to be fading i think more and more people are trending towards that open honest transparent type you know share the good and the bad and I think we're it'll be a great thing for the industry if that continues
2: there's been a pretty pretty good focus lately as well on um uh, on on ties with developers and depression or anxiety or even uh, bipolar disorder and that kind of stuff so i, I agree that's it, we're 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 becoming we're becoming the type of developers and the type of community that I'm really really proud to be a part of um and and it seems like it's taken a turn and I don't want to direct the conversation this way but I agree it seems like it has taken a turn especially in the last handful of years. So you uh you you started off you you broke off you you have your podcast that you work on. You uh, are, are kind of doing your own thing now. Is this is this your full-time gig is it just creating content? Is that what you do full-time now?
3: As of right now, yeah, that's it. Although I wouldn't so, say I'm holding myself to a full-time work schedule all the time, if I'm being honest. Well,
2: up. yeah, I mean you're golfing three days a week, and you know, like, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I get it, dude. I get it. <laughs> you got I'm your golf microphone boss. there, and <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, what? So what else have you been into? I mean, uh, uh, have you had a chance to experiment out of your uh, out of your normal? Uh, uh, work uh, like your normal tool set? Have you had the chance to experiment outside of your normal tool set and like, start growing and learning new things?
3: Yes. Um, I have been uh, working on Elm, uh, which is new newish to me, um, and really, really enjoying it. So for those that don't know, Elm is a, Elm is a compile-to-JavaScript language, and it looks kind of like Haskell. It's like an ML-based language, so it has really great types. It's functional, it's pure, And I am loving writing code with a useful and friendly type checker slash compiler. It has been an awesome experience. So I've been doing some of that. I've been pairing on Elm with Derek, uh, doing some little side projects in it, and I'm really digging it.
0: This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at Lino.com
2: slash rubyrogues. Brian's a big fan of Elm too, isn't he?
0: Yeah, it seems like people, when uh, when Elm comes up, they're either rapidly obsessed with it, or you get kind of a half-hearted "Yeah, I tried it." <laughs> I, I don't meet anybody in the middle. That's nice. No, I don't hear.
2: <laughs> I just don't. But Elm. So what, what's your what's your reason for loving Elm? Why why is Elm so great?
3: All right, I'm gonna zoom out a little bit to to answer that question. So I think the future of programming is programs that help us write programs correctly. I don't think we're going to make smarter humans by much, but I do think that we can successfully make uh, more effective programs that will help us write correct programs. And Elm's compiler, I think, is a great example of that. The compiler and the type system helps you write correct programs. And if we improve the compiler, everyone that uses it can now uh, have a better chance of writing code that's correct and easy to refactor. And so Elm may not be the next big thing, but I do think that the meta trend of the way you're gonna, we're going to write more ambitious code is by having computers help us write that code. I do think that is uh, inescapable. I, I'm, I'm pretty confident of that conclusion. And so Elm may not be the exact thing that we end up using a lot, but I think you should. everyone in the programming world should be keeping their eyes on languages like that because I don't think there's there's more juice to squeeze out of programmer brains and keeping track of what's nil and, and, and whatnot. Uh, but I do think there's a lot more we can do in terms of uh, programming language design and powerful type systems.
4: I keep hearing that with uh, types and, and, I, and I've used types in different languages and love that. It, and everything Every time anybody moves on to something new, they always bring up the type system. It just seems that Human brains can't keep up without having types in there to help us out.
0: We're Rubyist blasphemy. (laughs) I (laughs) love Ruby so check. I'd be willing to bet.
3: I'd be willing to bet all of the money I've made for my course so far that your most common exception is no method error on nil, right?
0: Probably.
2: (laughs) Probably, I'm I'm looking around guiltily.
3: Yeah, I mean that's just that's basically like the Ruby exception. That's like you know part of life. (laughs) <laughs> and the reason is nil is pervasive in Ruby. It, it, it gets returned a lot from places you might not expect it. It's kind of Ruby's default answer, like, oh, I don't know, here's nil. Uh, and that is, that is actually a great example of a problem that you can solve with the type system. And like, for instance, Elm has a thing called a maybe type. It's like an optional from Scala or Swift. Um, and it basically, you can represent in the type system, hey, this thing might return a user or it might return uh, nothing. There might not be a user there. And Elm lets you not have to remember that. Like in Ruby, the answer to like de- returning nil is just like, remember to check for nil all the time, everywhere. Never forget. If you do, it'll blow up at runtime. Preach. That, that to me is just... What's that?
0: Preach it. Preach.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that to me is just an untenable position. Like We're, we're not going to be able to write great software over long-term and more ambitious software. when We have to do things like remember all the time to check this thing all the time, never forget. But computers are amazing at tasks like that. They're so good for it. And so I think we should offload that kind of thing out of our brains and
0: into a program.
1: Yeah, And I that's what Elm
0: not. does, and that's what I think the future is. I may or may not have
4: a TypeScript habit, so I understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cool. I came back yesterday on a project. I, I've been doing a lot of Elixir lately, and I came back to Ruby yesterday and uh, didn't have my pattern matching. And so not knowing what mm-hmm. type of thing I'm, I'm receiving just drove me nuts, and I... Anyway, I, <laughs> I, I like these kinds of things sometimes. But, but to be fair, I did about 10 times more with my Ruby, my quick Ruby scripts to, to figure out a problem than I could have done in any other language that I know.
0: So I have a question going back to the kind of the original topic of this where we were talking about development speed um, in Rails. Mm-hmm. A lot of people, when they're refactoring their Rails apps and they're trying to get more speed out of it, they're refactoring older versions of rails right they're they're in a position where they're working in rails 3 or rails 2 heaven forbid um you know rails 3 was nice rails 4 was nicer um and so it's kind of an upgrade and a refactor and trying to get uh tools and all the other stuff so so how does that work um what do you mean by how does it work? So so how how do you do different things? Like if you're working in an older Rails app, d- does your course dive into, you know, upgrade first or does it dive into, you can still do these things in Rails 3? Um, I didn't. So in my course, I used the latest Rails
3: version, which is five something, I forget. Um, and I didn't really address uh, upgrades from older Rails versions. Um those definitely are tricky. They're part of having an older app. Uh, but I just decided to treat that as out of scope for this particular course.
0: All right. So then most of your uh points or episodes in your course, um, they're things that have existed in Rails forever. And so people in a Rails 3 yes. or Rails 4 app can still use them.
3: Gotcha. Yes. Yeah. Oh, totally. So having made video courses before. Uh, that relied on certain ver- uh, versions of Rails. I will never do that again if I can at all avoid it. Uh, <laughs> up, updating a video course is brutal. You basically have to, you often just have to start over from scratch, which is awful. Um, and people have this perception: oh, this if this uses an older version of Rails, the content is no longer valid. If you you know, and and sometimes that's true. It's usually not. For my course in particular, the concepts I'm talking about are I expect a total. I mean, are are, are relevant for. All, all Rails versions you might feasibly use and probably uh, the future of Rails as well. I mean talking about things like tell don't ask or testing best practices or um, using REST reliably or fa- refactoring form objects. I don't think these are ch- things that will change across Rails versions. Callbacks maybe a little bit but they've been pretty stable for a while.
2: Yep. I have found that I, I oftentimes probably, probably once a month or once every other month go back to uh, to view the uh, Rails casts, and, and of course, more recently, like I'm totally digging and diving into uh, Drifting Ruby, um, awesome resource as well.
1: I know that. Yeah, yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's one of the things. Though, when you talk about refactoring older apps is that you don't have good test coverage. Chances are, you know, so that's one of the things where, you know, I started Drift Ruby uh, over two years ago and I was horrible with writing tests. You know, it's actually been a more recent practice in the past year of realizing the importance in tests that I am going to touch this code again. It's not a matter of if I will, it's a matter of when I will and when I do, I need that confidence that the changes that I'm making are good changes and it's not going to break functionality. So I, I recently just got uh, complete code coverage on Drift and Ruby. You know, there's not a lot of moving parts, so it wasn't too difficult. But now um, I have the confidence that if I want to go in and make a new feature or change something around, that it's going to work. And I don't have to worry about getting an um, email at 2 a.m. saying, hey, this is broken. So I think, you know, the first stage in refactoring is having good test coverage. Because if you don't have that test coverage, then you have zero confidence. You have what you think is confidence, but you don't have the actual true confidence that this is going to work.
3: Totally. Yeah, I, I, I view having strong test coverage as pretty much a requirement for like serious software development. I actually didn't even cover that in my course because I took it for a given. Now granted, Thoughtbot is pretty uh, test obsessed. Like we're very that that is baked into the culture. Is that we, we I think we TDD just about everything. Um, and so, yeah, I, I wouldn't work. I mean, I would I wouldn't join a company whose app didn't have a test suite for it. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't take on a project. I wouldn't do it myself. I just think that's part of the core comp, like skill set of a professional professional developer is writing tests for the code that you're writing. Almost always. Exceptions apply,
1: sure. Yeah, I think a lot of people just fall into that trap where upper management, they demand results. They want to see results. And you have to cut corners uh, to deliver those results. And sometimes what gets cut is the tests, because tests take a while to write. You know, good tests do to cover Mm -hmm. a lot of different scenarios. So I think those are Mm -hmm. usually like the first things to, you know, get dropped off if you have a deadline to meet and there's not enough time.
3: I think you're right, and I think that's an unfortunately a false optimization. So skipping tests is one of those things that in the moment feels fast, but over the even medium term is slow. Like yeah. not having test coverage means that later you're gonna pay massive penalties in your inability to refactor the app. And so I personally haven't been in that situation where I've had to, to make those trade-offs much, uh, but I think that's it's that's a really it's an easy trap to fall into. Intuitively, it says, "Okay, well, we'll just get the test because it'll be fast," uh, and that's generally true for a little bit in the moment. But if you, talking, speaking of your, you know, your your rail development speed slowing down over time, there's no faster way to kill your development speed than to write code that's untested. I think.
2: You're exactly. If you
3: right. don't have the ability to come back and refactor a thing and be confident that your changes that you. Uh, are you know resulted in working code, you won't refactor. And so you will just let the code quality kind of drop over time because you're too afraid to change things because it works now and you don't have the confidence of, that a test suite would give you that the changes you make uh, worked.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, it's either that or you get to the position where effectively what you wind up doing is you wind up writing more untested code and then you pile more untested code on that and then eventually you wind up fixing the bugs that you introduced that you never would have if you'd had the test there to validate all of the assumptions that you'd made to that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, so I
3: talked earlier about how I think Elm is an example of uh, programs write right programs. A test suite is the same thing, right? It's code you've written to help you write correct code. And so in a language like Ruby, I think you need to write a fair amount of uh, test code to make sure your production code is correct. One nice thing I've noticed about Elm is that the type system and the compiler is so powerful, I feel the need to write fewer tests. And so I'm getting that same confidence of um, a program is checking my work
4: for me, but someone else wrote that program for me, which is, is really wonderful. It all comes down to confidence, doesn't it? When the, when the dev's confident, things work.
1: Well, not yeah. only that, but also it paves the way for CICD. So not only can you have good confidence in your code, but you can also streamline your deployment process with confidence that, you know, you don't... As, I think you still need some sort of DevOps team to make sure that, you know, things are going good and if something ever happens in production. But you're able to do a continuous deployment which really cuts down on the potential human errors that are introduced with deploying code.
4: You know, I, I found the same thing with uh, DevOps teams as well. Is that really it's just somebody that's confident with what's going on in production and what to do if something went wrong. <laughs> so having the confidence on that level as well to to keep an eye on things and but but obviously to hand off something that's that's good, that's worthwhile, mm-hmm. that's right for production.
2: I face these issues every day at my day job and also. different aspects of of my development life where it really comes down to it's it's almost like pragmatism is a currency that you have to purchase with tech debt and sometimes pragmatism is required sometimes making a shortcut or doing something a certain way is required because a business needs it but every time that happens you're purchasing that and taking on this loan of tech debt that will eventually have to be paid off no, I think it's like uh, it's like debt is not necessarily a bad thing, right? Um, I, I don't th- if 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 all you're focused on is is not having any technical debt, then it's very likely that that's all you're focusing on and not on the business wins. But um, it's just a fine balance between the two. I, I struggle with, and I struggle trying to say, well, what are the what are the hard rules? What are the rules that we could follow that would tell us what's worth what pragmatic choices are worth the technical debt that it might bring and what ones are not.
3: Yeah, I think you will continue to struggle with that. Uh, and I think we all will. And that's why we get the big bucks, because there is not a hard <laughs> yeah. and fast rule like, when is that, when is that <laughs> compromise worth it? That's, so when, uh, is, well, your, when is, is your next video
2: series on, on pragmatic <laughs> tech debt coming out, Ben?
3: <laughs> um, well, well. So, for I tried to consistently when I offer uh, in the videos where I talk about specific refactoring techniques, I tried to always include a discussion afterwards of the pros and cons, because there are there are basically no pure wins uh, in programming. It's like this thing is ver- better for these reasons, but it's worse for these reasons. And so, depending on which of these pros and cons uh, af- affect your situation most strongly, you might choose to do this refactoring or not. And so I, I tried to lead by example by talking about the pros and cons, and just to make it clear, like you need to be thinking about these things. These are not blind things to apply uh, without consideration. They, they come with their own downsides, and you have to just sort of say, which, what pain is the worst? What do I need to, uh, what debt do I need to pay off the most?"
1: You know, I tend tend to follow a very loose and probably bad rule of thumb for technical debt, and it it always looks at the client first. So how, how much is this technical debt going to affect the client? So if I'm creating a new table or something that's I know I'm gonna have to change down the road because I didn't have time to design it properly, that's probably gonna, in the end, create some downtime to the client if I take a snapshot of my database, do the deployment, do QA, turn the site live again, whatever the case, then that's unnecessary downtime that I'm going to have to have when I go to refactor, and it's unnecessary. So in those kind of cases, I would say it's better to not have technical debt. But if you're talking about just a function that doesn't have a performance impact where it's not going to really make uh, a difference to the client, it's not going to occur any downtime later, when I go to refactor, and if it's something that is not often used, it's not a mission critical part of my business logic, then it's okay to kind of throw some trash in the code there. But for the most part, if it's client affecting in any way, shape, or form, then technical debt is just bad.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like. I think that's a smart angle to think about it from the thinking about it as the as an impact to the business because that's that's what really matters. Like it's no one the business doesn't care how beautiful your classes are. The business cares if it takes you longer to add features or if it takes you or if you're writing lots of bugs or you're causing downtime I think that's
0: that's the right uh
3: lens to, to view it through
0: yep, absolutely so you've got this refactoring rails course up, and it appears to be live and available for people to buy. What are you working on now? Uh, I'm so glad you asked uh so uh, I'm creating a new
3: course uh, called the 30 Day Code Quality Challenge, and uh, I actually just purchased the domain. It's not up yet, but it'll be at codequalitychallenge.com. And at least at first, uh, this is going to be uh, a free course. It's going to be language agnostic. And my the the view of the course is it's better to do a little bit every day than to try to do these big heroic quality improvements. And so. For a month, I'm going to be sending out uh, a tip every workday, or sorry, an assignment, I should call it, every workday, on, okay, today we are all going to do make this change to our apps. Uh, and it will be uh, something concrete. Like one example I could give is uh, do a search through your app and look for comments, to-do comments, that say things you're going to do later. And delete those comments and instead create an issue in your tracking system and track those there instead. And so, so a sort of a small win, something that won't take a super long time, but moves the code quality forward a little bit. Uh, and my goal is to make this uh, sort of more of a, almost like a support group, like a fitness challenge in a way. Like we're all going to do this diet together and work out every day. Well, we're all going to work out our code quality every day. And my goal is to spin up a forum or some sort of collaborative area where we can talk about how it's going, what our successes are, what our challenges are. And uh, hopefully at the end of it, I believe that those like repeated small efforts actually have, can lead to really big impacts so I'm hoping a month after we start, people look
4: at the code bases they're working on and say, damn, this is, this is a lot better than when I started. I'm in. <laughs> That's <just> exactly <laughs> awesome. what I need on, on a project I'm working on. It's just, you know, we, we've got it. We've got it delivered. It's doing great things. Now we get to clean it up a little bit and not lose momentum. So this is perfect. Perfect for me. Awesome. Thank you. Cool.
1: So, yeah, so I guess my prerequisite is to go put comments in my code.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, don't, don't do that. Um yeah, if, I may have I mean to do something like a fallback a fallback challenge for when uh you know people don't have it's not appropriate to people, but we'll see.
0: Well the thing is, and the, the, the thing that I like about this, you know, even more than the refactoring rails course is that for example in sports, you see these athletes go out and when they're practicing, you know, on the ice or in the pool or anything else, they are basically doing just the basics right. I mean, I was a swimmer in mm-hmm. high school. And it was, you know, the position of my hands or, you know, we would put fins on and kick, you know, to to practice our technique and to add resistance, you know, to strengthen those muscles. And Mm -hmm. that's, that's what this thing kind of shouts to me is, look, you know, there are some really small, basic code quality things that you can do. And if if you do them every day. Then you'll get to the point where, okay, now we have a larger refactor, or now we have a bigger issue to solve. boom, you know I've got enough of the basic skills to where I don't have to think about those. I can just think on pushing a little harder or kicking a little faster, or you know just just digging in a little deeper totally
3: yeah, I, I think people discount a little bit the power of small repeated efforts. It's easy to focus on sort of a heroic. Uh, like, we should take a whole week off or a month off and just, uh, and just spend all day uh, fixing these, this technical debt or whatnot. But that's hard to justify. It's hard to fit in a schedule. Uh, but it, these like, small, repeated efforts, I think, are, can be quite effective in the aggregate. Uh, but they're easy to fit in your week, they're easy to justify. And so I, 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 think, I think there's something here. I'm, I'm excited about this idea.
0: Yep. All right. Well, is there anything yeah. else we should dive into before we do picks?
1: Make sure that you have good code coverage. 'Cause even when doing something, you know, to tell you a horror story, it is Halloween today, so not sure when this mm-hmm. will error, but um I went and added frozen string literal true to the top of some of my classes, not realizing that I was manipulating a string down and like further down in a method and it broke the method. So You know, even though that was a, quote, better practice, and I think in Rails 3, or in Ruby 3, sorry, that's going to become a default that you would have to explicitly set a frozen string literal to false to not have uh, that functionality within that file. It broke some stuff. So if I had good code coverage, then I would have caught that immediately without deploying to production. So... I think a prerequisite to anything, reducing technical debt, refactoring, adding new features, having good coverage, whether you're doing TDD or not, is really important.
0: Seconded. Yep. All right. Well, let's, let's do us some picks. Okay. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30 day trial. That's right, 30 day trial if you try them out. So go to GoFreshbooks.com slash dev and enter dev chat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a thirty day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash dev and enter dev chat in the how did you hear about us section. Dave Kimura, do you want to start first?
1: Aha, you said my last name to say me. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I just have one pick today, and it's called Sentry. It's an error manage or error tracking, and it's something that I had heard of in the past a lot, and uh, I recently just stood up my own environment of it, and it's been amazing. You know, it's a really good error tracker, and I had done an episode on tracking errors and posting them to Slack But Sentry just does all of that for you. So I've I've been really impressed with their software and just how well it works. So that's my pick.
0: Nice. Um, Dave Richards, what are your picks?
4: Yes, today I've got one as well. It's a TED Talk from uh, Dan O'Reilly. And it seems to fit really well with what we're talking about today. Uh, So it's what makes us feel good about our work. And so it. It's a great talk.
0: Awesome. Um, I see that uh, Eric is dropping in and out. So if we can get him back in, we'll let him do picks. Eric, do you want to do
2: some picks? Yeah, my internet keeps going in and out. So I'll be really quick here. My pick, which I found completely invaluable and, and, and every developer needs to look at it, is Metabase. I've talked about it before, but I feel so strongly about this. Metabase provides you top-tier BI quality tools that sit on top of your database that give you immediate reporting, uh, immediate uh, uh, powerful query generators, and it's free. It's, it's an open-source project. Um, Metabase.com is the website. If you don't use it yet, you're doing yourself a disservice. Check it out, Metabase.
0: Awesome. Um, I'm going to jump in here with a few picks. Um, the first one is uh, New Year. That's N E U year.net. Um, they sell ginormous whiteboard calendars that, that come in rolled up like a poster. So I have like my whole wall. It's, it's literally a six foot by three foot calendar that's on my wall kind of in front of me. And, uh, so I put it up for 2018. I've been putting in like the conferences I'm going to attend and everything else, uh, family reunions. My wife made sure that that wound up on there. Um, and that's just been super. So I'm going to pick that um, one other thing that I'm going to pick here is, um, I ran by Walmart the other day cause I had a project that I was working on and my soldering iron just wouldn't get warm. Um, and I fiddled with it for a while and I finally gave up. So, uh, I went and got a battery powered cordless soldering iron and I, I, I love it. <laughs> I don't have to pull on that stupid cord. Um, it came in pretty handy last night. My dad has, uh, a, a lift chair. It's a recliner that anyway, he had, he had a hip surgery that, that didn't work out well for him. So he basically sleeps in that chair and it quit working. So I went over there and opened up the handset and soldered it together. Just kind of a fun, handy tool. I also used it on the Pinewood Derby track that, that we have here, um, and got that working so that, you know, you push the button and the gate opens and the timer starts and all that good stuff. So, uh, I've been doing some IOT stuff with that. I kind of want to dig in a little bit more into like MRuby and stuff. I was just programming it in C, but yeah, loving that stuff. So anyway, uh, lots of fun there. And then um, as this comes out, I think I mentioned before that I'm doing a course on how to find a job. Um, We'll we'll be two weeks in when this comes out. Um, You can still sign up and get the videos and any help you need. But uh, yeah, just just, going to point that out because I double checked the timeline on a lot of this. Uh, Ben, do you have some picks for us? I do. I have
3: two. Um, So the first one is a gem that I use in all my apps, which is called adder extras. And it basically lets you eliminate some boilerplate from Ruby. So for instance, uh, it's very common to make a class that say like this class takes an invoice and an employee, and I want to assign them to instance variables. And then I want to make a private set of adder reader for invoice and employee. And that's like six ish lines of pretty boilerplate Ruby. And this gem lets you do it in a single line. And I'm a big fan. Eliminates a lot of noise. Nice. And then I have uh, one other, which is a book. And the book is called Desk Bound, Standing Up to a Sitting World by Kelly Starrett. And it's sort of like a uh, survival guide for how to work uh, as a developer or someone that works at a desk a lot and not have your body go to to crap. Uh, It's for addressing pain and for staying uh,
0: supple and not getting stiff. And uh, I'm a big fan. Nice. And then one other thing that I wanted, I should have asked beforehand, but I didn't. If people want to follow what you're working on or see where you're at these days, where should they go? <laughs> Twitter is pretty solid.
3: Um, my Twitter handle is r00k. Or you can go to benorenstein.com. If you get on my newsletter, that's like probably the most reliable way to stay on top of what I'm doing. I write I don't write there very often, but when I do have new stuff, I always send it to my list. Uh, and when you do sign up, I'll send you um, uh, a handful of the best things that people seem to like that I've made, videos and talks and blog posts, things like that.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, I'm just going to wrap it up by encouraging people to go check out Refactoring Rails. Uh, what's the domain for that? Just uh, Refactoringrails.io. There we go. I, could, I, I didn't have it in front of me and I couldn't remember if it was com or net. So, okay, Refactoringrails.io. And... uh if they want to see the details on the 30-day Code Quality Challenge, do you, do you have any details on that? Um, uh, newsletter, will definitely get uh, information about that or you can go
3: directly to codequalitychallenge.com. I imagine by the time this thing comes out, uh, I should have a landing page up there so you can just dive right in there uh, specifically if you want.
0: All right, sounds good. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this show up. Thanks for coming, Ben. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. All right, we will catch Talk
2: you later. All right, take care.
0: Thanks. See you